0: This morning, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew uh, with a look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21, calling this sermon, Five Loaves, Two Fish, which I think for most people who have uh, any experience with the Bible uh, know that that's going to be the feeding of of the 5,000. You're familiar with that idea of the boy who gave five loaves and two fish. But this passage actually starts um, with the death of John the Baptist. And that really got me thinking about the fact that Um, You know, Jesus called him the greatest of all time. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says, "...truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." And I think this concept of being the greatest of all time, Jesus says here, no one greater than John the Baptist. We've been hearing about that a lot as we're in the middle of the uh, Summer Olympics. And and one of our favorite things to do in, in commenting on sports is to try to determine who is the greatest of all time. So whether that's um, Simone Biles that we've been talking about as a gymnast or Michael Phelps as an ex-gymnast who's there commentating on the games, we love to deem somebody to be the greatest of all time. And whenever we do that, we tend to look past just what they do in their sport uh, to really their whole life. How do they live? What do they, I remember back when Michael Phelps was swimming, people were obsessed with what he ate, um, how he lived, they were obsessed with not just what they do on uh, the field or in the pool or on the mat, uh, but what they do, uh, how they live their life as a whole. And that's really what we think about when we see John the Baptist, that we want to look at his life as a whole. And today, we're not only going to consider how he lived, but we'll consider how he died. We'll look first here at verses 1 through 12, the death of John. It says this, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her what she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, but, be, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. So we see first in this passage, Herod's guilt and paranoia this passage almost all occurs in flashback in fact at the beginning of this passage verse one says at that time herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of jesus in verse two he said to his servants this is john the baptist he has been raised from the dead so what we see here is that jesus as he's doing these miracles and he's becoming gaining in fame gaining in popularity Um, the, The people start to talk about him more and Herod eventually hears word of Jesus and his great deeds. And he determines this is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. And that comes from his deep sense of guilt and a sense of paranoia. He feels guilty because he executed John the Baptist when he knows that it was wrong to kill John because he hadn't done anything wrong. Um, and in fact, he killed him because of the wrong that he had done that John was calling out. Um, and consequently, now he's paranoid uh, and believes that John has risen from the dead uh, and taken over the body of Jesus in some way. Right? He's, he's, he's saying that somehow John's spirit is reanimated in Jesus or something to that effect. He doesn't really know. The point is he's guilty and paranoid because of what he did. And then Matthew's going to recount what he did. And what he did rose from John's condemnation. John had condemned Herod's marriage, and in reality, Herod's second marriage. So Herod had divorced his first wife in order to marry his sister-in-law, his brother Philip's wife. and both of, So both of them were married, Herod and Herodias. They were both married. married. Herod was married to someone. Herodias was married to his brother Philip. They both divorced their spouses in order to come together. There was no grounds for this. There was no, uh, nothing good. It was purely born out of adultery. And John rightly decrees that it wasn't right for him to have, uh, have his brother's wife. And, and John's words carried tremendous weight with the people that Herod was ruling. So that the, not only did, did, does John make this condemnation, which may, might sting um, for Herod. But not only, not only that, but the people respect John. They respect what he has to say. They view him as a righteous man. And so, and so for them, uh, this is now carries weight that their ruler has been condemned. And Herod, and especially Herodias, his, his now second wife, um, they really don't like that John is saying these things and that the people are taking them seriously. And, and so they have him arrested. But they don't put him to death because they fear the reaction of the people. Herod fears the people would revolt or there would be some kind of uprising or mob or something like that. But then comes along Herod's birthday and he's having a party and his wife's daughter, so his niece, both his niece and now his stepdaughter, dances for him and for all the people, which is sick on its own because this clearly wasn't just like an innocent Dance. This was a provocative dance. This was um, a sexual dance of some kind, and so um, Herod is pleased with the dance, which again just goes back to um, how how awful this whole situation is. That he's um, enjoying this dance in this kind of perverted way, um, and and that this this dance is being done by both his niece and his sister and his his stepdaughter. Um, but he's pleased, and he says, "I'll give you whatever you ask." Um, And her mother instructs her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. She rightly doesn't know what to ask for. This has never happened to her. Um, And and so she goes to her mother and her mother tells her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod doesn't want to do it, but he's kind of painted himself into a corner here because he vowed this before her and before all of his guests. And so now for him to deny her request, um, is going to really put a damper on the party and put him in a bad light and so he doesn't feel like he can say no. And so he commands that John be beheaded. But this is an interesting there's an interesting thing here and that John didn't, Herod didn't want to kill John. And, and why is that the case? Right? Herod, by all accounts, is this like cold-blooded uh, ruler who uh, you know is, is I mean willing to, to sin in this major way, willing to, defy even the conventions of his people, uh, to marry this, his brother's wife. Um, and, and so what, is, what was the motivation for him to not want to kill John? Why didn't he just kill him right away? He could have put down any uprising that, that came up. It was more than just his fear of the people's reaction. It was also that he, he sensed the spirit of God in John. In spite of how uncomfortable John's accusation made him, Herod couldn't help but find something compelling about John. So what was that? What is it that he found so compelling about John, even as John was condemning him, even as John was accusing him of these things? Well, the reality is that John brought a message of hope. Fundamentally, John's message was a hopeful message. We see this in Luke chapter 3, verses two through three, where it says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John didn't just condemn people. He also preached that forgiveness was possible, right? He's not just, when it says he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he's inherently in there, offering people a way out of their sins. Right? He's offering them a way out of this pattern of life that is just destructive and causes pain and trouble for them. He's not just printing, preaching to them that they're wrong. He's also pre- preaching to them that forgiveness is possible if they repent. And inherently, all of us know that we're guilty. We know that we have sin. We know that we fall short. We know that we're not perfect. And so forgiveness is a very attractive And hopeful thing that we can be forgiven is huge. And so the fact that he brought this message of forgiveness uh, is big. He also brought a message of reform. We see in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, a little further on in Luke's account, that the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them: Whoever has two tunics is to share with him, who has none, whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, "What, what, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. What we see here is John addressing some fundamental problems in their society. And he's addressing them by changing the hearts of the people that are causing the problem. Right? So he says, first, that's why he says, first to the people when they ask him, what shall we do? That he says, if you've got extra, right? If you've got two tunics, share with somebody who doesn't have one. If you have food, share with somebody who doesn't have food. He's encouraging them, not by, not by command. He doesn't command them to do it. They ask him, what shall we do? They want to do this. They want to change. They want reform. And he tells them, share what you have. Be generous. Care for those who don't have and, and, and look out for each other. That is a fundamental problem that that has existed in all societies, that there are people who have and people who don't have. Uh, And throughout history, we've had people who've tried to solve that problem, and often they solve it through coercion or command in some kind of way, like like communism that, that demands that people give away what they have. But here, John says, if your heart has been changed, if you found forgiveness from God, then be generous. This is out of their desire to change, not a Not forcing them to change. It's a big difference that John is saying here be generous with what you have. He also addresses the tax collectors who were a major menace because they were basically given uh, the right to steal from the people, to take more than they were authorized to take. That was in fact how they made their living and how they would get rich was by taking more than they were, they were authorized to do. And there was no checks on that. The Roman government knew they were doing it and they were fine with it. They were basically fine with them doing, taking whatever they could get away with as long as they gave the tax that the, the, the Rome, that Rome asked them to. And he says, so when they come to him and they ask, okay, what should we do now that we've repented and now that we've gotten forgiveness from sins, how can we respond? He tells them, to collect no more than they're authorized to do. He says, just take what you're you're given. Take what you have been given. They they had a salary built into the amount that they were asked to take by the Roman government. And he tells them, just take what you're authorized. Don't take more. Don't extort the people. Same as soldiers. Soldiers were a major problem for the the common people because they could extort them. They could take things from them. They could threaten them with... Uh, being jailed or, or fined in some way. And he tells them, when they ask, what shall we do? He tells them, don't extort money from people. Don't make false accusations. Don't make threats. Be content with your wages. So he brings this message of reform to the people. Um, he doesn't prescribe drastic measures. He, he simply calls people to do what is right. We also see that John brought a message of good news. Good news. If we jump a little further in Luke's account, it says, So with many exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. So Herod locked up John, but John had gotten through to Herod on some level. He brought a message of good news. It was viewed in a positive light, not just by the people, but also by Herod. It got to him. Deep down, Herod knew that John was right. There was something itching at him deep inside that he knew this is a godly man. He respected John and liked listening to him, even though he told him hard truths. Mark tells us, that Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and that and he kept him safe when he heard him he was greatly perplexed yet he heard him gladly so mark there gives us this insight that John could speak in such a way that he could tell Herod that his marriage was wrong that his marriage was unlawful that he could condemn all the other evil that Herod would do and yet Herod wanted to listen to him. It tells us that Herod was greatly perplexed. He was confused of like, why do I just want to kill this guy? Instead, he heard him gladly. He, you can imagine John even in prison and Herod coming and visiting him and them talking through the bars and, and Herod just wanting more and more and more to hear him. He knew that he was righteous. He knew that he was holy. So even though he was condemning him, he still kept him safe until the end. And then we see that the greatest of all time was beheaded. We already looked at that passage where uh, Jesus proclaims John to be the greatest of all time. And we should consider the implications of this statement and, and John's untimely demise. The fact that Jesus still said this is the greatest man of all time and yet he was beheaded. Even though John was the greatest of all time, God allowed him to live a life of poverty and isolation and ultimately to be arrested and beheaded. What this shows us and what is crucial because of all of the false teachings that exist in the church today around this idea of prosperity uh, and, and blessing if you do what God asks you to do, we see that John did exactly what God asked him to do. And yet he lived this life. He, he lived out in the wilderness. He was isolated. Even if he, he had people coming to see him, but it doesn't seem that he had a, a great deal of friends. It doesn't seem that he had a partner. He, he was pretty much alone, isolated. He was living this unique life. And he was poor. He lived out in the wilderness. And he he wore simple clothes, ate bad food. Uh, he, he lived this life and doing what God asked him to do. And it resulted in him being arrested and then beheaded. This should show us that doing what God wants you to do will not necessarily or even probably result in you being comfortable and you being wealthy and you being healthy or you being long-lived. That it, it, that just doesn't jive with scripture. It doesn't jive with when we look at the example of John the Baptist. It he, These things were not true of him. So when, when there are people that come along and say, listen, if you do what God asks you to do, he will bless you richly. He will make you rich. He will keep you healthy. If you just pray hard enough, he will heal you. All of those things, that if he, when, when people tell you that, it does not jive with scripture. It does not jive with the fact that the goat was beheaded, right? That John the Baptist, the greatest whoever, man who ever lived, died young by being beheaded by the state. And so if, if that's what we're attaining to, if that's the standard that Jesus is, a, is calling us toward, That is a more likely outcome than you getting rich from following Jesus. We'll continue here with verses 13 through 21, a desolate place. It says this, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. What we see in the beginning of this passage is Jesus' grief. He receives this terrible news that his friend, that his cousin, that his forerunner has been executed. And he withdraws to a desolate place to grieve. Look at this first verse that we looked at, verse 13. When Jesus heard this, when he heard the news that John had been beheaded, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He's trying to get away. He's trying to get some time on his own. He's trying to get some time alone to grieve. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he grieves as both. I think oftentimes people look at a passage like this and they say, oh, this is is Jesus, the man, grieving, because God certainly wouldn't grieve. But God grieves too. And Jesus is grieving here as both God and man, always. Everything that he does is as both. So Jesus, even though he knows the end from the beginning, he knows that he will see John again one day and yet he still grieves. What this shows is that grief is natural and right. It's a result of our being made in the image of God. It's part of that imago day. It's part of how we were created that God grieves too and that it's okay for us to grieve when things, bad, things, bad things happen, when we lose people like Jesus lost John here. Even though he knows he'll see John again one day, he still grieves his death. And he's trying to get away, but they follow him. They follow him on foot. So he's in the boat alone. He gets in the boat to be alone, and he he paddles out. And the crowds, they won't leave Jesus alone. They chase him down. They chase him down. And Jesus reacts with compassion. says that he had compassion on them when he got to shore He sees the crowds, he has compassion for them. He recognizes that the same brokenness that caused John's death is is also plaguing this people. That's the connection that we make here is that compassion can flow from grief and often does. Often our compassion is a result of our seeing the brokenness of this world and, and the way that it affects the people around us, the people that we love. And that compassion can flow and allow us to, to care for other people in a new way. So Jesus' compassion is connected to his grief here. Compassion is an acknowledgement of the brokenness of this world. When we see the brokenness of the world as a consequence of our collective rebellion against our creator king, we will be able to sympathize with the pain that we see around us. The world is fundamentally broken as a consequence of our sin and it's continually broken by our sinful deeds. And the good news of Jesus is the only solution. So when we see that pain, and we see the brokenness for what it is. Our natural reaction is grief, but it can also be compassion and care, sympathy, empathy for the people around us who are also suffering in the brokenness of this world. And so he cares for the people. He heals them. He's teaching with them. He's talking with them. He's doing ministry with them. And, and then the disciples come and they, they bring him a real problem. They say, listen, here's the problem. It's getting late. We're in the middle of nowhere. And they have a very practical solution, right? Send the people away to the villages to buy food. I think if I was with the disciples, that, that's a very reasonable thing to say. or It's a very reasonable um, proposition that he's saying, hey, Listen, Jesus, you didn't even intend to have this meeting today. You tried, you were trying to get away. It's late enough. You've done enough. Let's send the people away. They can get something to eat. We'll go get something to eat. We can have some time alone. If you want to go get away, you can get away. But let's just end this session. Like this is enough. You did enough work today. You're grieving still the death of your friend. Like, let's let's just wrap it up here. But he tells them, you give them something. He tells them in this moment, no, 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 no. they don't need to go away. You need to give them something to eat. You need to care for them. Essentially, Jesus tells them that the people's problem is their problem, that they are responsible to feed the people. And, And let's be clear, this is an unreasonable request that Jesus is making of them. It's an unreasonable request. How are they possibly to feed the people? It's a huge crowd. There's nowhere to buy food. Even if they could buy food, there isn't anywhere to buy it, right? They they it would cost way too much for them to try to feed these people if they could buy food, and yet they can't even. There's there no shops around. There's nowhere to. There aren't even houses that they could go to. They're in the middle of nowhere. It's an unreasonable request, and that that's the position Jesus puts us in sometimes, where he puts us in a situation where he asks us to do something, and we go, I don't see how I could possibly do this. I don't see how I could possibly reach this person that you've put in my life. They they seem like they've got all kinds of walls up. I don't know how I could possibly serve in this way. I'm so busy. I I don't think I have the time. I don't think I could possibly do these things that you're asking me to do. Sometimes he asks us things that are unreasonable. And in those moments, it is our responsibility to turn to him. So we'll see what the disciples do. The disciples do their best, right? You can imagine that this was a a half-hearted attempt to, to find food. Um, they begin asking around to see if anyone in the crowd brought food. They find a boy who has five loaves and two fish. As, as John John's account tells us. Matthew doesn't mention this boy. But John does. It says one of his disciples Andrew. Simon Peter's brother said to him. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? I think their off, offer of these five loaves and two fish is. Uh, really more, I, here, here's what I think the situation was. If I was the disciples, here's what I think I would do. If I was told like, no, you give them something to eat, I would go, okay, let's prove to Jesus how little food there is here <laughs> and go around and ask people and find this kid who's got five loaves and two fish, bring them to Jesus and say, look, this is all the food we could find. Hoping and, and, and assuming that he'll say, you know, you're right, that was unreasonable. Go ahead and send him away and, and, and we'll, we'll pick this up in the morning. That, that's, where, that's where my heart would be. That's a like practical, reasonable person to go, like, let's just prove this to him that it's not going to work. And, and so th- they make this offer, and Jesus is thrilled. He's like, great, this is, this is plenty. Which I think just leave them scratching their heads going, what, how is this possibly going to be enough? And yet Jesus feeds 5,000 people families, notice. It tells us that it was 5,000 men besides women and children. So essentially it's saying 5,000 families. Maybe some men were there on their own. Uh, maybe some women were there on their own, but we can kind of assume that this was 5,000 families. Um, so really way more than 5,000, at least 10,000, uh, probably more than that. So Jesus, he gives thanks for, the, for God's provision. He begins to break the bread and fish, and then he gives the disciples the food to distribute it so again notice all the ways that jesus has them involved in this process jesus wants the disciples to be involved in this process he doesn't just do it himself he doesn't go around taking it and 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 really getting getting all the credit here he first he asks the disciples to find the food they bring it to him and then he gives it he multiplies it and gives it back to them and then they go distribute it this is how jesus invites us on mission with him and in the same way that he wanted the disciples to be involved, God wants you to be involved. He wants you involved in his mission. And this is how he works. We bring him what we can. We bring him the little bit that we can. He multiplies it and gives it back to us. And then we continue to live on mission with him. This is the beauty of being on mission with Jesus is that he does all the miraculous stuff. He does all the work we can just do our best. We can bring what we have and he will honor our faith. He'll honor our efforts and make it more than we could ever hope for. We see at the end that there are 12 baskets of leftovers. In in telling of this miracle, Matthew again points to Jesus here as the better Moses, which is really the point of these 12 baskets is anytime you see the number 12 really in in scripture, it's pointing back to the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. And here, these 12 baskets of leftovers, they point to the 12 tribes of Israel, and it points us back to God providing manna for the people in the wilderness. So just as he provided manna for the people in the wilderness here, Jesus provides bread and fish to the cra- this crowd of Jews. There are 12 baskets of leftovers there will always be more than enough for what God wants to do. Listen to that again. There will always be more than enough for what God wants to do. His miraculous provision teaches us that we can rely on him to provide for our needs when it suits his will. We see two realities playing out here. We see the first in that God didn't rescue John the Baptist. John didn't rescue John the Baptist God never even fed him very well, right? He locusts and honey. That, that, I, that's, it's highly doubtful that was his like preferred diet, the thing that he like, wanted to eat more than anything. No, that's just what God provided to him. Here, and, and then he gets arrested. God doesn't rescue him. He gets beheaded. God doesn't stop it. That was within God's will. And then here, in, the, in, in this desolate place, God provides fish and bread for all of the people In excess, there's always more than enough for what God wants to do. And we can rely on him to provide for our needs when it suits his will. But it's always in submission to what he wants. And sometimes he wants us to go through hard things. Sometimes he wants us, he he needs us as part of his plan for our lives that we will go through hard things. We can trust God to care for us, to provide for us, to lead us to what is truly good. And what is truly good is defined by him. And we can trust and believe and rely on that. But it is within what he wants. He is the king. His will is the final word. And it is what we should want more than anything else is his will. This is why we pray, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 6:10, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven this is why jesus before the cross in the garden of gethsemane he prays father if you are willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done jesus prayed not my will but yours be done he submitted himself to the father can we pray that as well can we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven can we pray your, not my will, but yours be done. Even when it means, as in this case, Jesus was going to the cross. He asked that that cup be taken from him, that he not have to go through it, but he submitted himself to God's will. Can we do the same? We'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways from today's message. Number one, speak the truth in love as John the Baptist did. I was so struck in this passage, this, this time around. That's the beautiful thing about the Bible is that we can always notice something new. It's always all, always there. All the truths are always there, but different things get highlighted to us. And the thing that stuck out to me in this passage is the fact that Herod didn't want to kill John because he respected him, because he liked listening to him. He recognized his righteousness, his holiness. He recognized the spirit of God in him. And so John was able to say these hard things and yet still keep Herod's respect. Can we do the same with the people in our lives that God calls us to to speak to? Can we speak the truth in love the way that John did? Number two, allow compassion to flow from your grief. Grief is natural. It's a a part of living in this broken world. It's a recognition of the fact that this world has been broken and continues to be broken by our sin. Can we be compassionate? compassionate in response. And then number three, pray that God's will would be done in your life and recognize that that's the greatest thing we can ask for is that God's will would be done in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do submit ourselves to your will, God. We want what you want. We recognize that your ways are not our ways and that your ways are better. So God, in all of the things that we might request, we ask that your will would be done. We ask that you would lead us to be on mission with you, to partner with you. That we would bring what we have and you would multiply it and give it back to us. God, work in our lives that we might speak the truth and love to those that you bring into our lives that need to hear it. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.